0: It is an honor to be able to assemble as a Christian, isn't it? To wear the greatest of all names and to be able to come together as we are this evening and to appreciate that it is a grand privilege and a great blessing to be sure. Certainly as we come together for that, that purpose, to worship God, we've already lifted our voices in song and we've offered prayer to Him. And at least for the next few moments... Let's give a reflective thought to the seventh chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. If you would, be turning to that chapter, and we'll continue our series of studies this evening. I hope that you have found the book of Ecclesiastes to be a helpful book, a motivational book. It still answers, or at least addresses, in a dramatic biblical way, that ancient old question, is life worth living? Now, I had thought about perhaps sharing or at least using some words of philosophers throughout the ages. The amount of material that has been written based on trying to answer that subject is extensive. It is remarkable the number of articles and books in which these scholarly individuals wrestle with the very basic question of whether or not life is worth living. And as you look at some of their answers, to some extent it brings a chuckle to your face, But on another occasion, it brings an incredible note of sadness because it betrays the utter misunderstanding of so many people throughout the ages. By and large, you'll find that their answers that they suggest are based simply on the degree to which one appreciates enjoyment. That's the only basis in their mind as to whether or not life is worth living. Some of them are quick to say, if your life is such that you're beset with health issues and problems and challenges of various and sundry sorts so that the majority of the time you're ill or sick, then life is not worth living, in their opinion. How wrong they are. How completely misguided they are. And the way you and I know that doesn't rest on our physical understanding. It rests on the proclamations of the infallible Word of God. Tonight, we'll continue that particular study. We'll do that in the following way. This opening slide is nothing but a very brief reminder of some of the things we have seen in the first six chapters of the book. Remember, in the opening assessment, as long as you only look at life as viewed under the sun, you find that there are many things that offer a consideration that maybe, in fact, it isn't worth living. But again, that's only viewed under the sun. As you and I have found beginning at the end of chapter 3 onward, there are many elements in wisdom and many tremendous truths based on the viewpoint above the sun from God's perspective. And that will continue even tonight. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, we have highlighted a number of vanities based on Solomon's inspired presentation. And tonight as we come to chapter 7... You'll notice that tonight's subject is all about wisdom. Every bit of the lesson tonight will touch the subject of wisdom. What are the advantages of being wise? If it's true that a wise man, just like a fool, is going to die, how sure are you that it is indeed better to be wise? That's a good question. I'd like to offer you, based on the Word of God, three things tonight from chapter 7 that are such that it's better to be wise. Let's see if we can appreciate what those three things are. You'll notice as we come to the top of this next slide, from the opening ten verses of the chapter, there is something to be noted about a betterment in life for those that are wise in contrast to those that aren't. The first ten verses, since they aren't very lengthy, I'd like to just read them. And listen to the inspired instructions of the writer of the long ago. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Surely oppression maketh the wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Say not thou, where is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom the centerpiece of the first ten verses, and frankly the centerpiece of the rest of the chapter. But these ten verses seemingly surround the notion of wisdom is a key to a better life. Let's quickly make a few observations. First of all, it begins with a good name. A good name is valuable. I realize that there are many in our world who perhaps would say it doesn't really make that much difference earn a living, take care of yourself, but there's something to be said about that which associates to your name. Do folks appreciate in you a person of honesty? A person who is willing to work or is one who's lazy? Or do they appreciate in you the kind of individual that your word means something? If you say it's this way, then to the best of your knowledge, that's the way it is. A good name, it says... Is better than precious ointment. Now, precious ointment in that day and time was exceedingly rare. In fact, perhaps you can consider the following. Maybe the closest thing we can think of is perfume. I realize you can go to a store in Cookfield and you can perhaps buy some expensive perfume. Are you aware that, as far as I know, the most expensive perfume on earth that you can buy, one ounce of it, one ounce, mind you, will cost you in excess of $12,000. That's a lot of money for an ounce of perfume. Notice again, it's valuable. And yet Solomon here says that a good name is more valuable than that. A good name is that noteworthy, and it is that precious indeed. You'll notice on this slide, Proverbs 22, verse 1, written by the same author, echoes the same sentiment. A good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, and loving favor more so than wisdom and honor. A good name, then, is something you and I should closely safeguard. We shouldn't conduct ourselves in a way that others will deliberately be led to a ponder that our name is not that worthwhile to us. How often in the Bible, you recall what Esau did? He sold his birthright. Remember, he had right and entitlement to it and sold it for a bowl of beans. Therefore, he forfeited the lineage of the family named for him. He forfeited the respect and responsibility that went with it. Again, according to Genesis chapter 27, I would suggest to you then that in light of that, Solomon next quickly calls us to highlight several things that may appear strange. Let me ask you to briefly consider them. Verse 2, It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Who do you suppose will be quick to say that? You're better off going to a house where mourning takes place than to a house where laughter takes place. How often do you and I think that way? If given the choice, we'd far better go to the house where there's a party going on, for most of us, than to go to the funeral home. But yet Solomon says, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now let's make sure that we don't take what his statement is too far. He isn't saying it's wrong to be happy. And he isn't saying it's wrong to be appreciative and thankful for what one has. But in terms of the greatest of all life lessons, you're far better off to appreciate they're likely to come in the place of mourning than they are in the place of feasting. Many of us have traveled along the roadway of mourning and we know that well. When we have been faced with hardship and difficulties and we had to make do with various and sundry things less than the ideal we often learn dramatic lessons of contentment, dramatic lessons of, if you'd say it this way, perseverance, than were otherwise available at the, house of, at the house of feasting. Notice he says at the end of that same verse, that is the end of all men. How many of us again could say that in those moments of sickness or in those moments of challenge... We often learned what we were made of, and we learned the metal, M-E-T-T-L-E, that would permit us to be victorious and triumph even in challenging circumstances. No wonder, he said, that's the end of all men. Everybody's going to have their hard times. It's what you learn from them. It's what you're able to take out of them and apply to greater and other circumstances in life. And verse 2 ends, and the living will lay it to heart. Those that are wise will learn those lessons and use them to benefit later in life. Those who party all the time, they don't learn those lessons. They never see beyond the immediate moment, and they don't lose heart in light of the greatest of all appreciations of what life's all about. Life isn't all about simply fun all the time. It has its challenges. Look at verse number 3. Sorrow is better than laughter. One more time, that may sound just the opposite. We'd prefer to laugh than we would to cry. No doubt about that. But Solomon's point is this. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. When it comes to the things that lead you to learn matters and to appreciate new viewpoints... Far more often than not, it'll be through the moments of sorrow that you learn things you'll never forget. You seemingly don't learn them near as often when you only laugh. For those reasons, verse number 4 says, The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Please again, don't misunderstand. He's not saying it's wrong to laugh. And he's not saying it's wrong to enjoy and to be happy. He's saying when those circumstances in life arise and you and I find ourselves in these circumstances, the wise will appreciate that in mourning there is much to be gleaned. And he or she will plant that to heart and use it later in life in valuable ways. But on the other hand, those who only hear the song of fools... All you do is surround yourself by these individuals who try to make great note of entertainment in that regard and never think about those deeper lessons in life. You'll regret it because when you yourself face those matters, you'll not have the wisdom and the wherewithal to withstand. No wonder as you close that slide with me, there is something to be noted even about rebuke. Consider this one with me, verse number 6. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. I particularly like that analogy to the crackling of thorns under a pot. Maybe many of us have at least experienced something like it. Have you ever perhaps walked in a particularly dry time and maybe one of the things you and I recognize so often, in a particular time of drought, you walk through perhaps the yard and after some leaves have fallen, they'll just crunch beneath your feet. May I ask how valuable that crackling sound is to you? Do you learn anything from it? You already know it's dry. That sound of crackling... Solomon says, that is about as much wisdom as you'll get from a fool. Isn't that interesting? One more time, as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. How much better off you are to hear the rebuke, verse number 5, of somebody who's wise. Somebody who loves you enough and cares enough about you that they'll tell you, you know, Randy, you were wrong in that. You really should have looked at that differently. What you said and what you did was not the best course of action. And that person who is wise and who is willing to share that, you ought to esteem that advice more than all the laughter of a fool. There's a lot of people that will laugh with you. They want to use your money and take care of things along with you in that regard. And didn't Rehoboam learn that? There's a lot of people in 1 Kings 12 that said, Oh, we're your friend now with all that money you've got. But once the money's gone, we're all the friends. How well we ought to appreciate the counsel and the advice of those who will rebuke us in love, criticize us in love, and bring to our attention faults and failures in our life so that we can change them. Solomon understood that. Remember, he was the king. Do you suppose there were a lot of people who were happy to surround him and be with him and lift up his hands and said, that's a great idea. Oh, that's exactly what you ought to do. Because they wanted to enjoy the monetary and financial blessings of being his sidekick. I suppose there weren't very many who were willing to say to the king, you were wrong in that. And you ought to have done it differently. Solomon in verses like this appreciated it would seem. Those who had the wisdom and the counsel to tell him that he had made a mistake. As you and I close that slide, this isn't the only time that's found in the Bible. Psalm 141 verse 5 also highlights a premise like that one. But in the interest of our continuing discussion, let's go ahead and note this. Were you aware of the fact that this chapter discusses some shortcuts? Now, by and large, you and I like shortcuts in life. Ways to accomplish something more quickly, more efficiently. Solomon is going to offer to every one of us a serious challenge. Shortcuts are not always good. According to this chapter, in fact, there are some shortcuts that are going to be bad. And you and I ought never to take them. Let's see what some of them are. First of all, beginning in verse number seven Surely oppression maketh a wise man mad, and a gift destroyeth the heart. Solomon seemingly knew very well that one of the shortcuts that sometimes an individual will try to get what you want or to get it more speedily, verse number seven, is the usage of a gift. You pay somebody off or you bribe them, in other words, so that they will do what you want or vote the way you want or say things the way you want them to see it. You see that? It may be a shortcut to get what I want. But Solomon now is seeing that from the perspective of this gift, you see, only blinds the perspective of justice. It only, in fact, lessens the character of integrity and honesty. So notice, he's talking about that gift whose end is to bring about what's not ideally good. He says that's not a good way to do things. You and I don't shouldn't look for shortcuts that way. Look at the second example, verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. May I ask you to notice... There are times that you and I give thought to the end versus the beginning. I know that in my line of work often, that's certainly something to think about. A student starts with a semester and it won't end for three and a half months. There's a lot of studying that needs to be done from now until then and a lot of careful deliberation and consideration. Sure enough, if looked at carefully, I think there's a lot of times we'd agree the end is better than the beginning. But isn't it true that in life, for the Christian, that's always true? Not just sometimes, it's always this way. For no matter what you and I are called upon to face or endure, even if that's less than ideal, rest assured with God in the equation, the end will always be better than the beginning. For He's with us, and His Word guides us. The end is better than the beginning. With God in the equation, there's never an exception to that rule. When challenges come your way your mind don't ever forget, with God in the equation, the end is always better. Isn't that the grand message of the Bible? God's tomorrow is better than today. To those who are faithful, to those who in fact leave this life obedient to God, the end is better by far than the beginning. For heaven awaits... Eternity awaits. But of course, with God not in the equation, the end, in fact, may be far worse than the beginning. For after all, one leaves this life unprepared for judgment. What a catastrophe. What a tragedy. Let's add one more to the list. The next verse. Verse number 9. Be not hasty in thy spirit to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. Interesting, isn't it? Solomon himself now leads us to note this. Sometimes one of the shortcuts that you and I will rest upon is, well, if I just get angry about it, this person will buckle to what I want just so that there won't be any conflict. That's not a wise way to do it. Oh, you may fly off the handle and you may get angry and you may cause a ruckus and the person may give in. But the situation is not better. All it does is cloud the matter. He says, don't be hasty to be angry. There is a time and a place to be angry, no doubt about that. Be ye angry and sin not, Ephesians 4.26. There is a time and place to be angry, but don't be quick to be angry. Make sure you understand all the aspects of the issue You may fly off in anger at something which really is not a problem in the first place. All you've done is harm your reputation if that's true. Remember, a good name is valuable, verse 1 says. Notice again, then, don't be hasty to be angry, for anger resteth in the bosom of fools. There we have it. It's those that are foolish that are quick to be angry. May you and I again be wise and don't take that shortcut. Look at the next one. The past. Oh, it's easy to fall into this trap, isn't it? The good old days. Oh, how good we had it back then and how wonderful it was back then. And Oh, if only we didn't have these problems like we have now. Sometimes we are guilty, I suppose, of over-glamorizing the past. You know, the past had its problems, too. And the past had its challenges, and it certainly had its difficulties. And history, at least if it's honest, will always record them. Sometimes we often think things are just sliding downhill, and no doubt morality seems to have its challenges today that weren't always there then. But may we never over-glamorize the past. Look at how Solomon states it. Verse number 10 Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. There were problems in Jesus' day. The Roman Empire in many ways had a morality far less than even today. The Babylonian Empire, it had its morality far less than even today. There have been empires since that also knew of their own challenges. The lifespan today is far more than it has been in days gone by. The level of health care again is far better than many have known in days past. We have appliances that they never dreamed of. There are many things to be said about today that weren't true in the past. May we at least recognize that not every way was the past better than today. Certainly, there are some ways that we should keep in mind what Solomon says. Otherwise, we aren't terribly wise concerning this. I'm reminded of what Paul affirmed in Philippians 3, 13. I haven't apprehended, he said, but this one thing I do, forgetting what's in the past and reaching forward to what's in the future, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3, verses 13 and 14. There's something about appreciating the nature of the moment and understanding to reach forward to what's in the future, striving for it to be as godly as you and I can encourage it to be. So far in the first ten verses, we have looked at wisdom from this vantage point. How about another vantage point? That of a clear viewpoint. In verses 11 to 18, we hear these interesting words. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, and by it there is profit to them that see the sun. For wisdom is a defense, and money is a defense. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which he hath made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider God also hath set the one over against the other, to the end that man should find nothing after him. All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, Neither be thou foolish, why shouldest thou die before thy time? It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. Again, in brevity, could we at least note some of these matters? First of all, wisdom in regard to wealth. Verses 11 and 12 Put it in language like this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Even if you inherit, make sure you don't spend beyond what wisdom would entail because you soon will have nothing left. Do you begin to see that even Solomon admits even in matters like this, it's important to to allow wisdom to prevail? And along that line, might I suggest this. Isn't it true that maybe this is one of the clearest passages that identifies wisdom is better than money? Now, our world would likely disagree with me on this, and thus would disagree with the Word of God. Give me some money to buy a car, to buy a house, to buy some land, to buy a boat, you name it, but I just would like the money. And yet Solomon says, don't you know, wisdom and knowledge are better still. Wisdom and knowledge are thus equipping an individual such that that one shall be able, not only in the near term, but even in the distance, to sustain and to maintain. Isn't it interesting how verse number 12 begins it? Wisdom is a defense, and so too is money. But the excellency of knowledge is this, that wisdom giveth life to them that have it. If you only have money, you really don't have life. Oh, you may be alive in the flesh, but those who have the wisdom of God, whether they have money or not, they're alive, and they look for a home better than this one. May you and I always look upon the money God allows us to have and recognize we're nothing but stewards of it. It all belongs to Him anyway, Proverbs 24-1, or rather Psalm 24-1. And yet you and I, what great wisdom there is to be seen, and with that inheritance... It takes us directly to verse 13. Now on that slide, I've asked you to remember this little lesson. And you and I would never have doubted it. God's way is always, always best. I realize it may not look like it from the vantage point of humanity, but His way is always best. Not only in matters related to the church, not only in matters related to salvation, but in every walk of life, whatever God affirms, it's always best to do it His way. Solomon's going to give us some cases in point. Verse 13, Consider the work of God, for who can make that straight which He hath made crooked? May you and I never forget that. There are some things that are a part of God's creation that are simply going to be that way and man cannot change it. Man cannot change it. That's one of those instances when we should appreciate that in wisdom we should accept the fact that it's better that way because God dictated it so, and you and I should just understand that. Learn from it and utilize it in that fashion. But on the other hand, verse number 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, in the day of adversity consider. How wise is that? When there are good times, be thankful for them. Appreciate them. And know that they are almost guaranteed not to last. But in the day of adversity, consider. These times won't last either. For the faithful of God, there's always a better day awaiting. Thus, that gives us balance in life. In the high points, don't allow ourselves to be too high. And the low points don't allow ourselves to be too low. Understand the balance taught in passages like this one. And appreciate that. Oh, how sweet it is to be a Christian. That balance is highlighted in verse 16 like this. Beginning in verse 15, "...all things have I seen in the days of my vanity. Solomon, what have you seen?" He said, "...I've seen it all. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness." Sometimes a good man will die young. We've all known that to be true. How important then is it to always be wise? To live faithfully. You may not be here tomorrow. But by the same token, he says, and I've seen it so, there is a wicked man that prolongs his days. There are some old men that are just plain wicked. Sometimes you and I might think that doesn't seem fair. A young man... Dies a godly man, but yet an old man lives to be wicked. Solomon said, I'm telling you, this balance in life challenges us to appreciate verse 16 then like this. Be not righteous over much. Now this verse and the one that follows has caused an issue in the mind of some people. Let's take a moment and make sure we can sort it out. It says in verse 16, be not righteous over much. Verse 17, be not overmuch wicked. So is God here saying, it's okay to be a little bit wicked. Just don't be too much wicked. And is he saying in verse number 16, don't you be a goody two shoes and to be overrighteous? You just be somewhat righteous. Is this what he's saying? That's not what he's saying. In neither case, let's sort it out. I've tried to ask you to consider this. That phrase, to be not righteous overmuch, it carries the thought of conceit. It carries the thought of arrogance. He says, even if you attempt to live righteously, don't you be conceited about it. Don't you look down your nose at others. You'll never win them to God that way. You'll never, in fact, cause them to appreciate that you are an individual with love and desire in your heart for the things of God. Jesus loved all men. By the same token, that next verse, be not overmuch wicked. Now, he is not saying you can be a little bit wicked. Just don't be overly so. Because you'll notice in that slide, the meaning is this. Don't expect spiritual perfection. In this flesh, you are never going to be spiritually, sinlessly perfect. There are going to be mistakes and flaws. You're going to make your errors in judgment. You're going to, in fact, err in particular decisions that you may make. It's just the way it is. That would appear to be the thrust of it, for notice how the verse ends. Neither be thou foolish, why shouldst thou die before thy time? point is, we certainly should strive to live in a, in a state that's dedicated as nearly to God as we can be. Jesus, didn't He not say in Matthew five forty eight, be perfect as God is perfect. We are admonished to try to live as closely to the Lord as we can. Again, in this verse, He is not saying, you can be a little bit wicked, just don't be so much so. That's the furthest thing from what He says. Maybe for that reason. Let's close that slide and learn the lesson of verse 18. It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. You and I need to learn these lessons. And we need to live by them and appreciate them and utilize them in such a way that we can live more faithfully and directed toward God. The last part in the chapter again discusses wisdom from yet one more vantage point. It's the vantage point of strength. Would you like to be a strong person? Would you like to be an individual known for strength? If so, the latter part of this chapter is all for you and me. Beginning in verse number 19, it was the lesson text read in our hearing a bit earlier. Verse 19 to verse 29 reads like this, Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in the city, For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Also take no heed unto all words that are spoken, lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself likewise hast cursed others. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands, whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh. But I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Let's close our lesson tonight in the last section like this. May we never lose sight of the value of wisdom. And that wisdom attaches almost singularly to the revelation of God because He is the source of all wisdom. Proverbs 1 verse 7, He is where it's found. And yet, highlighted wisdom in that fashion brings us to this. Verse number 20, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Doesn't that sound a lot like all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Romans 3.23, doesn't that sound a lot like 1 Kings 8 verse 46? There is no man that sinneth not. All of us are going to have our failures and faults. Solomon says, you need to appreciate that when you make a mistake, don't wallow in it. Make it right. Don't remain in the error. Get it forgiven and move on. That's sound wisdom, isn't it? You know, sometimes our nation likes to relish in the sins of the past, to dig up the matters in a person's life. And if a person has been forgiven of these things or made those things right, they are ancient history. Look at what's next. Verse number 21. This is also sound advice. Take no heed unto all words that are spoken. You can't believe everything that everybody else says. Some people are going to try to deceive you. They're going to outright lie about you. And they're going to say what even they know is not true. Solomon says you can't listen and believe everything that everybody says. If you do, you're going to make yourself miserable. Isn't that sound advice? Verse number 21 ends by saying, Lest thou hear thy servant curse thee. You know, sometimes people say mean things about us. Quite frankly, sometimes they say honest things, but we just may not like to hear them. Solomon even admits, if you listen to everything everybody says about you, it's not wise if you believe everything. Notice verse 22, For oftentimes also thine own heart knoweth that thou thyself cursest others. Do you ever say negative things about other people? Do I? Well, you know, others have got to say similar things or at least some negative things about you too. Keeping all those things in mind. Verses 23 and onward. Close the chapter with this new viewpoint of wisdom. Again, we're discussing strength. All this have I proved by wisdom. Solomon has proven it. He said, I will be wise. It was far from me. He looked in the wrong place. Remember, chapter 2 told us that. He looked for power, for prestige, control, authority, money. He looked in all the wrong places. And wisdom wasn't to be found in any of them. But now at verse number 24, he says, "...that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out?" Aren't you thankful and aren't I? We know the answer to that for God has revealed where this wisdom is to be found. We can find it out. Let's read on. I applied mine heart to know, verse 25, to search, to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly. You know, the book of God reveals to us many things about the behavior of people. We aren't left to know that certain things are wrong. I don't care what the human family says about it, it's wrong. And it'll always be that way. We know that because of the Bible. On the other hand, we know there are certain things that are right, and it'll always be right, not because I think so, but because the Bible says so. Solomon began to appreciate some of those truths. And now he applies some of those things in languages like this. Human behavior. The latter part of this chapter surrounds that topic. I find more bitter than death, verse 26. The woman whose heart is snares and nets. Now, no doubt that certain thoughts could apply to a man. But there are some women and there are some men who they're just up to no good, if I can put it in language like that. They'll deceive you. They'll tell you what they think you want to hear, even though it's not the truth. They will, in fact, attempt to, by way of snares and nets, to engulf you. They'll flatter you in a heartbeat. All the while, they're not telling you the truth. They're just trying to get an advantage over you, so you'll like them, and that'll pay dividends for them sometime later. Oh, what danger there is in a flattering tongue. Notice how Solomon puts it, verse 26. More bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, who pleaseth God shall escape her. That's why it's so important for a young man who is seeking a wife. You look with care to the heart of that young woman. What kind of a person is she? It could be, if her heart again is more snares and nets, you will be wise to escape from her. Don't be engulfed by her. Proverbs chapter 5 talks at length about this. He again reiterates some of that even here. You notice verse number 26 says, The sinner shall be taken by her. She will have an advantage over some, those who listen to her. The next verse says, Behold, I have found saith the preacher, counting one by one. He kept a count. Solomon, tell me about your count. Verse 28, Not one man in a thousand will be honest and godly and upright. Young women, you find that one man in a thousand. You search and you find that man who wants to go to heaven who will help you get there. Notice, not one in a thousand. Now that's pretty poor odds. Notice in Solomon's day, there wasn't a lot of godliness to be found apparently, and yet you'll notice still one in a thousand was to be found. In Noah's day, there wasn't a man on earth but him and the four boys that were godly men, right? Joshua and Caleb were only two out of the twelve that said we can take it. Isn't it true that among the 603,550 fighting men that left Egypt, only two of them entered Canaan? That's terrible odds. But you see, being on God's side is always better. Isn't it true that not one man in a thousand? And sadly, verse 28 says there was not even one woman in a thousand. The odds were even worse may you and I remember how wonderful it is to have a godly mate, to have someone who truly loves the Lord. Now you'll notice Solomon in other writings, such as Proverbs 19, would highlight the blessedness of a godly woman. Well, sure enough, in this instance, it is so important that we encourage our children, our youth, to make sure to find that one in a thousand to find that person who will assist you in journeying toward that land of fadeless day, that place called heaven. And with that, the chapter closes in verse 29. Lo, this only have I found. Solomon, what have you found? God has made man upright. God has made human beings upright. Now, he didn't just mean we walk on two legs, whereas animals in most cases walk on four. He didn't just mean that. He may, He meant this, He has made humanity different than an animal. He's made us upright, honest, godly, forthright, and appreciative of the fact that we have a higher responsibility. The sad statement that ends the chapter, though, is this, and it begins with the word, but. But they have sought out many inventions. There are many senses in which I think that could be the slogan of the modern day today. God made us upright, but they have sought out many inventions. Homosexual marriage, all these other inventions that men have come up with, it's not upright, it's not noble and right and godly, and God never made man that way. What evil inventions we've sought out. Let's close that slide and close our lesson and do so with one final appreciation. We've studied wisdom tonight based on the seventh chapter of Ecclesiastes, and many elements I thought we would just take it verse by verse, and to some extent we did. I hope we've all been encouraged. Chapter 8 is going to bring us more wisdom, I admit, but we'll take up that on, 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 on the next occasion. But as we do that, and as we look at all of this book, I hope we notice the practicality of it. Everything from knowing how to handle adversity to how to handle good times and to be balanced in life and to always be faithful, to always be servants of God. It could be that someone in this audience, upon an analysis of your life, you realize all isn't well and your soul is in danger. Please realize that before we exit this building tonight, everything could be right. You could leave knowing that it's right. And knowing that you could pillow your head in safety and security and that you need not fear even if tomorrow should never come for you. That's the kind of security I want. And I know you do too. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, we could take care of that in a few moments. As you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins and confess His name, we would be happy to immerse you into Christ. If you have begun that walk with Him and you've known the faithful life that comes with serving Jesus Christ as King and Lord of all, but you have allowed missteps and mistakes and maybe vantage points in life of which these are characteristic, come back to your first love, would you? Jesus begs you to come, He implores you to come, and He wants you to come. And we would be happy to assist you tonight by praying to God for your forgiveness and upon your confession and repentance, He's promised He will. This evening, if there would be anyone that would wish to come, don't delay. Why not come now, while well, together we stand and sing?